my friend, I have a favor to ask. I'm running as a hero in the 2023 St. Jude Memphis Marathon weekend. St. Jude heroes are runners who fundraise while they train for their race. And I am proud to be a part of this nationwide alliance against childhood cancer. I want to help make sure that families never receive a bill from St. Jude for treatment, travel, housing, or food, so they can focus solely on helping their child live. Your donation, no matter the size, will help. Will you help me reach my fundraising goal? Please visit my fundraising page to show your support at fundraising.stjude.org slash go to slash Donita J. That's D-O-N-I-T-A-J. There's a link in the show notes. I can't thank you enough for helping the kids of St. Jude. After spending a hot summer day officiating at a race with a lot of beginner triathletes and answering a ton of questions, I thought it would be fun to share some really good questions and answers with you, my dear listener. So today, we are going to go through some of the most compelling USAT rules and why they exist. Whether you're a longtime fan or tuning in for the first time, I promise an enlightening experience filled with knowledge, passion, and some surprises along the way. So grab your favorite beverage, get comfortable, and let's embark on today's journey together. Listen in for episode 37 of the official Triathlete Podcast. Hey, my friend, my name is Danita Jacobs. Some people know me as a nurse, a leader, and health expert. Other people know me as a coach, race official, and seasoned triathlete. But at the end of the day, I'm simply a friend with a mission. I want to help you transform your life. My goal isn't to help millions. My goal is to help you. Welcome to the official triathlete podcast, where you will learn about all things multi-sport broken down into bite-sized pieces and how we can blend life demands with fitness goals. My approach is different because I am blending my 20 plus years of healthcare and athletic experience to help you be the healthiest, happiest, and most balanced athlete you can be. I believe in you, even if you don't. You really can reach those soaring goals and I'm here to help you get there. I'm so glad you made it here. If you have a question or topic idea, get in touch and let me know. After all, this show is for you. Enjoy. Hello, my friends and fellow athletes. Thanks for tuning in. I'm so grateful that you are here. I always start with a little message from my Train With Heart program. It's my mission to transform the whole athlete. So heart not only develops and prepares the body for improved athletic performance, but aims to optimize the whole person through healing, empowerment, awareness, reflection, and transformation. So each episode, I share a little snippet from how I help my athletes with one of these elements. Today, we are going to discuss empowerment. Let's dive deep into how the sport of triathlon doesn't just prepare us for races, but also empowers us in numerous aspects of our lives. When you train for a triathlon, you're not just focusing on one discipline. The combination of swimming, biking, and running requires a level of versatility and adaptability that's rarely demanded in other sports. And this adaptability is something we can carry into our daily lives. The ability to switch gears, adapt to challenges, and push through multiple terrains is a metaphor for life. Whether you're navigating professional challenges, personal relationships, or health concerns, Being a triathlete primes you for resilience. As a registered nurse, I've seen firsthand the incredible resilience of the human body and spirit. Triathlon builds not just physical endurance, but mental fortitude. Those long training days, the moments you feel like giving up but push through, they shape your mental strength. When faced with life's trials, this endurance reminds us that we can get through the tough times, just like we push through that last mile of a race. Triathlon is not just about race day. It's about the journey to get there. 
The hours of training, the balanced diet, the focus on recovery, all these are lessons in wellness. And in my dual role as a wellness coach and a nurse, I stress the importance of holistic health. Triathlon teaches us discipline, commitment, and the importance of listening to our bodies, all crucial components of overall wellness. It's no secret that the triathlon community is unique. The shared experiences, the cheering at races, the advice from fellow triathletes all create an empowering environment. And when you're surrounded by individuals who believe in pushing limits, who celebrate each other's successes, and who understands the struggles, you're naturally propelled towards a growth mindset. To wrap up, triathlon does more than just prepare us for race day. It empowers us to tackle life's challenges with resilience, endurance, and a supportive community backing us. So whether you're a seasoned athlete or someone considering their first triathlon, remember the journey you embark upon will change you, not just as an athlete, but as a person. All right, my friend, after officiating at my last race, I thought it would be a good idea to go through some of the most common triathlon rule violations and mistakes that triathletes make and why those rules even exist. A couple of weeks ago, I traveled for a very hot late August race that at the last minute turned into a state championship qualifier. As it turns out, there were a lot, and I mean a lot, of brand new racers that had never done a triathlon before. As the head official, I spent a lot of time redirecting athletes and making sure rules were followed. I also answered so many questions over and over as to why some of the rules were rules anyway. I was asked many excellent questions and was happy to answer them. But after answering the same questions over and over, I thought it would be a good idea to share those questions and answers with you. As a certified race official, it is my job to enforce the rules so that the race remains safe and fair for all athletes. It's an important job, especially in a multi-sport event, because there are so many moving parts at one time. Now, I know that some of the rules may seem unimportant, but I assure you that there are reasons behind each one. And it's not just to make your life difficult, and it's not because the race officials are on a power trip. So first off, let's talk about why it is important to have a certified race official at a triathlon to begin with. So having a USAT triathlon official at races is crucial for several reasons all of which aim to ensure that the event is safe, fair, and adheres to established standards. Here are the primary reasons why USAT officials are important at triathlon events. Number one is ensuring fair play. USAT officials ensure that all athletes compete on a level playing field by monitoring and enforcing the established rules of the sport. This includes aspects like drafting violations, equipment regulations, transition zone protocols, and much more. Number two is safety. One of the foremost responsibilities of a USAT official is to ensure the safety of participants. They ensure that the race meets specific safety standards, such as providing adequate support on the swim course, ensuring the bike course is free from hazards, and much more. Number three is consistency. By adhering to USAT rules and standards, athletes can expect a degree of consistency from one race to the next. This predictability is crucial for those who compete in various events throughout the year. Number four is resolving disputes. In any competitive setting, disputes or disagreements can arise. USAT officials are trained to handle these situations, provide clarity on rules, and make decisions that uphold the integrity of the race. Number five is education. USAT officials often play a role in educating athletes, especially the newer ones, about the rules of the sport. This educational component helps athletes better prepare for races and reduces the likelihood of unintentional rule violations. 
Number six is race sanctioning. For a triathlon to be USAT sanctioned, it must meet specific standards and requirements. Having USAT officials present ensures that these standards are maintained throughout the event, adding a layer of credibility and reliability to the race. Number seven is qualification and rankings. For races that serve as qualifiers for national championships or other major events, USAT officials ensure that all qualification criteria and processes are appropriately followed. And number eight is feedback for race directors. Post-event, USAT officials often provide feedback to race directors, suggesting improvements or modifications to enhance the race's safety, fairness, and overall quality. In essence, the presence of a USAT official at races helps uphold the sport's integrity, ensuring that events are conducted in a manner that's safe, fair, and consistent with the established standards of triathlon. Next, let's talk about what the officials are looking for before the race begins. At most races with an official, you will see that person and possibly some volunteers at the entrance to transition while athletes are arriving at the race and entering the transition area. You will also see them walking around the transition area, monitoring the athletes and equipment. So what are they looking for? So USAT officials have the crucial role of ensuring races are safe, fair, and conducted according to established rules and guidelines. During the transition setup period, when athletes are arriving and preparing their equipment, there are several things a USAT official may be looking for. Number one is bar end plugs. Officials check to make sure handlebars have end plugs or are otherwise sealed. This is a safety measure to prevent potential injury from the sharp end of handlebars. Number two is race number placement. The bike should have the race number properly affixed, usually to the seat post or the frame, depending on race instructions. This ensures easy identification of bikes and equipment. Number three is equipment positioning. All equipment, such as bikes, shoes, helmets, etc., should be placed in the athlete's designated area without encroaching on another athlete's space. This ensures smooth transitions and reduces the potential for mishaps. Number four, prohibited equipment. Officials look out for equipment that's not allowed, such as glass containers, headphones, earbuds, or other disallowed items. These items can pose safety risks or provide unfair advantages. Number five is bike functionality. While not an exhaustive mechanical check, officials might notice if a bike appears unsafe or non-functional. This can include issues like improperly attached wheels or broken components. Number six is uniforms and wetsuits. Depending on the race's specific rules, officials might check if uniforms adhere to branding guidelines, are of appropriate coverage, or if wetsuits are allowed based on the water temperature. Number seven is transition flow. Officials will ensure that athletes understand the flow of the transition area, including entry and exit points, to minimize congestion and confusion during the race. Number eight is general conduct. Officials monitor the behavior of athletes in the transition area, ensuring everyone behaves respectfully, doesn't impede others, and follows all race directives. Number nine is timing chips. Athletes should have their timing chips securely fastened, usually around the ankle. This ensures accurate race timing and athlete tracking. By ensuring all athletes adhere to these rules and guidelines, USAT officials help provide a smooth, safe, and fair race experience for everyone involved. So let's talk about a few of these in more detail. Why are officials checking for handlebar in-plugs? So handlebar in-plugs are required by USAT for a variety of important safety reasons. Number one is protection during a fall or collision. If a triathlete were to fall or collide with another competitor or obstacle, an exposed handlebar end could cause serious puncture wounds or deep cuts. 
the handlebar plug acts as a safety buffer, reducing the risk of injury. Number two is protection for other competitors. In the chaos of transition areas, tight turns, or crowded sections on the bike leg, it's possible for one athlete's handlebars to make contact with another athlete. Handlebar plugs can prevent the exposed end of the handlebar from causing injury in these situations. Number three is integrity of the handlebar. These plugs can also provide some protection to the handlebar itself, potentially preventing it from splitting or cracking in the event of a fall or a crash. Number four is preventing snags. Exposed handlebars could snag clothing, equipment, or even parts of the race setup, like course markers or barriers. This not only poses a risk of injury, but could also interfere with the flow of the race. And number five is consistency in regulations. Many other cycling and triathlon governing bodies worldwide also require handlebar plugs for the same safety reasons. USAT rules align with these global standards. This is generally the biggest safety issue we are looking for when determining if a bike is safe to use during a race. I want to give a big shout out to my friend, Mike Ham of Ham Built Wheels for saving the day for many athletes during the Dragonfly Try that I just officiated. Since there were so many new competitors, bar in plugs were a big problem, but Mike was there with plenty of extras and kept these athletes from being disqualified before the race even started. Mike also helped several athletes with another issue, removing their mounted mirrors. When it comes to mirrors, there are a few reasons why they're not allowed in USAT sanctioned events. Number one is distraction. Mirrors, especially those attached to helmets or glasses, can be a source of distraction. In a race situation, especially when cyclists are in close proximity, any lapse in concentration or split-second distraction can lead to an accident. Number two is field of vision. Some mirrors, particularly helmet or eyewear-mounted varieties, can potentially obstruct a cyclist's field of vision. This could lead to athletes missing important cues or hazards in their environment. Number three is a potential hazard in a crash. In the event of a crash, a mirror can become an additional injury risk. Just as the handlebar in-plugs are mandated to reduce puncture risks, eliminating mirrors reduces the risk of them causing injury in a tumble. Number four is race strategy and spirit. Part of the challenge and strategy of triathlon racing, particularly in draft illegal races, is maintaining awareness of your surroundings and competitors without the aid of devices. Allowing mirrors could give some athletes an advantage in being more easily able to see competitors approaching from behind or making a move, which could change the dynamic of races. And number five is uniformity and simplicity. Having a standardized set of rules simplifies equipment checks and ensures that all athletes are on a level playing field. By disallowing mirrors, USAT can make the equipment guidelines clearer and more straightforward for all participants. So why does USAT require race number stickers to be on the bike before entering transition? The requirement to have your race number sticker on your bike before entering the transition area serves several purposes. One is identification. With hundreds or even thousands of bikes in a transition area, it's crucial to easily identify which bike belongs to which participant. This is especially important in the event of a dispute or if a bike ends up in the wrong location. Number two is security. Race number stickers add an element of security to the transition area. Only bikes with official stickers corresponding to registered participants are allowed, reducing the risk of theft or unauthorized equipment being placed in the area. Number three is safety and medical emergencies. If a participant has a medical issue on the course or is involved in an accident, officials can quickly identify the athlete by matching the bike's race number with the participant list. Number four is efficiency. During the chaos of transitions, 
especially in large races, having an easily identifiable number on the bike helps athletes locate their gear quickly. Number five is race fairness. Ensuring that each bike corresponds to a registered racer means that all participants are using approved equipment and adhering to race regulations. Number six is race results and timing. For races that manually track athletes or need to resolve timing issues, being able to quickly identify an athlete's bike can assist in ensuring accurate race results. And number seven is sponsorships and race aesthetics. In some events, the race number stickers might also carry the logos or names of sponsors. This provides a uniform look to the bikes in the transition area and offers branding opportunities for event sponsors. In summary, Having race number stickers on bikes in the transition area is a simple yet effective method to ensure the smooth operation of a triathlon, from enhancing security to ensuring the fairness and accuracy of the event. Now let's talk about the swim. Why does USAT require athletes to wear provided swim caps? When it comes to the swim segment, provided swim caps are mandated for several important reasons. Number one is visibility. One of the primary reasons for wearing brightly colored swim caps is visibility. In open water situations, especially in larger races, it can be challenging for race officials, lifeguards, or safety boats to keep track of swimmers. Bright caps make swimmers easier to spot, ensuring their safety. Number two is identification and organization. In races with multiple waves or age groups, different colored caps might be used to distinguish between these groups. This organization helps race officials track the progress of the event and can also assist with timing systems. Number three is safety and emergency situations. If a swimmer is in distress or struggling, the bright cap makes them more noticeable to safety personnel. It's easier for a lifeguard or safety boat to spot and assist a swimmer if necessary. Number four is consistency and fairness. By providing all participants with the same swim cap, race organizers ensure that no athlete gains an unfair advantage. While specialized swim caps designed for speed might not give a significant edge, standardized caps ensure a level playing field. Number five is sponsorship and branding. Often, the provided swim caps will have the event's logo or a sponsor's branding. This uniformity can be essential for the race's image, especially in larger or televised events. And number six, environmental concerns. In some races, the consistency of swim caps might be important to ensure that the materials used are environmentally friendly, especially if the event takes place in sensitive aquatic ecosystems. While wearing a provided swim cap might seem like a minor detail, it plays a crucial role in the smooth, safe, and fair operation of a triathlon event. It's just one of the many measures in place to ensure the safety and success of every participant. By the way, it is legal to wear your own swim cap under the provided swim cap if you want to. And it should also be noted that even if you have little or no hair, you still must wear the provided swim cap. Okay, why are snorkels no longer allowed in triathlons? So snorkels have become a topic of debate in triathlon regulations, especially in the context of USAT rules. The decision to limit or ban the use of snorkels is based on several considerations. One is safety concerns. The primary reason for the restriction is safety. Full-face snorkels in particular can pose a safety risk due to potential CO2 buildup. If not properly ventilated, a buildup of exhaled CO2 can occur, leading to potential dizziness, confusion, or even loss of consciousness in the swimmer. Such incidents can be extremely dangerous, especially in open water settings with many swimmers. Number two is fairness and competitive edge. 
Some argue that using a snorkel may provide certain athletes with an advantage, as it can help with consistent breathing and can allow swimmers to keep their head down, leading to a more streamlined position in the water. Number three is emergency communication. In case of an emergency or if an athlete needs assistance, a snorkel could hinder their ability to communicate or get the attention of safety personnel. Number four is navigation issues. Using a snorkel can also affect an athlete's ability to sight or navigate during an open water swim. Proper sighting is crucial in triathlons to ensure swimmers stay on course. And number five is potential for collisions. In crowded swim starts or turns, snorkels can pose an injury risk as they can potentially poke or harm other athletes. It's worth noting that while many triathlon organizations or specific races may ban or restrict the use of snorkels, there might be exceptions based on specific circumstances or needs. For instance, certain athletes with documented medical conditions might be granted exceptions, but these are typically handled on a case-by-case basis. Okay, why is the temperature for wetsuit-permitted triathlon up to 78 degrees? The temperature cutoff for a wetsuit-permitted triathlon, specifically as outlined in organizations like USAT, has been established based on a balance of athlete performance, safety, and psychological responses to exercise in various water temperatures. The 78 degrees Fahrenheit, or 25.5 degrees Celsius, cutoff for wetsuits in triathlon is based on several considerations. Number one is hyperthermia risk. Wetsuits are insulating. While they offer buoyancy, they also trap a layer of water between the suit and the skin, which is then warmed by the body. In warmer water temperatures, wearing a wetsuit can increase the risk of overheating, which can lead to hyperthermia. This can have detrimental effects on performance and can be dangerous, leading to conditions like heat exhaustion or heat stroke. Number two is performance advantages. Wetsuits provide buoyancy, which can be advantageous for swim performance. This buoyancy can aid in better body positioning in the water, reduce drag, and conserve energy, especially for weaker swimmers. To maintain a level playing field, especially in competitive or elite waves, wetsuits might be restricted above certain temperatures. Number three, physiological stress. Exercising in warm water can increase physiological stress on the body. The combination of warm water and the insulating effect of a wetsuit can reduce the body's ability to offload heat. When athletes transition to the bike and run segments, this can lead to performance decrements and increased health risks. And number four is general comfort. Swimming in warm water with a wetsuit can be uncomfortable for many athletes. It can lead to increased perceived exertion and can affect the subsequent legs of the triathlon. It's worth noting that while wetsuits might be allowed when the water temperature is above 78 and below 84 degrees, they are not legal for award or qualification purposes. This differentiation allows recreational or less experienced swimmers to benefit from the buoyancy and confidence a wetsuit provides while maintaining competitive fairness in competitive categories. Okay, next is, why is it permitted for an athlete to rest by hanging onto a boat during the swim portion of a triathlon? Athletes are allowed to rest during the swim portion by hanging onto a boat, buoy, or other stationary object. However, they cannot make forward progress with this assistance. The rationale behind this rule is primarily rooted in safety. Here are some reasons why this provision exists. Number one is safety first. The swim leg, especially in open water, is often considered the most unpredictable and challenging segment of a triathlon for many athletes. By allowing athletes to rest, race organizers prioritize the safety of the participants. 
If someone is struggling, feeling panicked, or simply needs a moment to adjust goggles or other equipment, this rule can be a lifesaver. Number two is inclusivity. Triathlons often aim to be an inclusive event, encouraging people of varying skill levels to participate. Allowing a momentary rest can make the event more accessible to those who might be less confident in their swimming abilities or are newer to open water swimming. Number three is for environmental factors. Open water swims can be affected by numerous unpredictable environmental factors, such as strong currents, waves, or sudden changes in weather. These conditions can make the swim significantly harder than anticipated, and having the option to take a brief rest can help athletes navigate these challenges safely. Number four is mental reassurance. Just knowing that it's permissible to pause and rest if needed can provide a mental boost to athletes. This can reduce anxiety and panic, which are not uncommon, especially among less experienced open water swimmers. And number five, to avoid potential dangers. If athletes were penalized or disqualified for resting briefly during the swim, they might push beyond their limits even when facing distress, potentially leading to dangerous situations or requiring rescue. However, while athletes can take a momentary rest, they cannot use boats, buoys, or other objects to aid their forward progress. Doing so would provide an unfair advantage and compromise the integrity of the race. Okay, let's talk about some bike-specific rules. Why is drafting not allowed in triathlon? Drafting refers to riding closely behind another cyclist to benefit from reduced air resistance, saving energy in the process. While some triathlon races are draft legal, particularly in the elite ITU or world triathlon events, many triathlons prohibit drafting. Here are the reasons for the anti-drafting rules. Number one is the individual performance emphasis. The ethos of many triathlon events, especially longer ones, is the test of an individual's endurance, pacing, and strategy. By prohibiting drafting, the bike segment remains a genuine test of an athlete's individual cycling ability. Number two is safety. Close pack riding in a triathlon poses unique safety concerns. Many triathletes, particularly age group competitors, might not have experience or skills in close pack riding like professional cyclists. Triathlon bikes or time trial bikes are designed for straight line speed and aerodynamics. Their geometry makes them less agile and harder to handle in tight groups compared to standard road bikes. And triathlon courses can be crowded, and the mix of skill levels and bike types increases the risk of collisions if drafting were widespread. Number three is equipment fairness. Triathlons allow for a variety of equipment choices, especially in the bike segment. Some athletes use high-end aerodynamic time trial bikes, while others might use standard road bikes. Disallowing drafting ensures that those who invest in aerodynamic advantages can benefit from them. Number four is skill variability. Triathletes come from a range of backgrounds and not all have a strong cycling or pack riding background. While some might be comfortable and skilled in drafting, many aren't. A no drafting rule levels the playing field in this regard. Number five is race congestion. Especially in larger races, the sheer number of participants means that allowing drafting could lead to massive packs of cyclists, complicating race logistics and increasing the risk of accidents. Number six is administrative and officiating simplicity. Having a clear no-drafting rule simplifies race officiation. While enforcing no-drafting still requires vigilance from race officials, allowing drafting introduces a host of other complexities, like ensuring only certain equipment types are used. And number seven is training and preparation. 
Training for a non-drafting race emphasizes sustaining solo effort, which is different from the variable intensity of draft legal racing. Athletes prepare differently for each, so the distinction is crucial. It's worth noting that in a draft legal race, there are still specific rules and regulations about how and when athletes can draft, and these events often have equipment specifications to ensure safety and fairness. Okay, next up is why is the cycling draft zone shorter for standard distance triathlons and the draft zone is longer for higher distance triathlons? Drafting rules and the associated draft zones in triathlon races differ primarily based on the type of race. Whether it's draft legal or non-draft legal, the size of the draft zone and the drafting rules can influence race tactics, safety, and fairness. So number one, the race type and strategy. For draft legal races, typically seen in the International Triathlon Union or the ITU, like the Olympic Distance World Triathlon Series, these races permit athletes to draft off one another during the bike segment. The shorter draft zone is intentional, as drafting is a crucial part of the race strategy. Athletes in these races train specifically for pack riding, and the cycling leg can resemble a cycling road race where positioning, pack dynamics, and tactics play a crucial role. For non-draft races, these races have a longer draft zone to discourage drafting and emphasize individual effort. Athletes are penalized if they enter the draft zone of another athlete for too long without passing. So number two is safety. In shorter draft legal races, athletes often come out of the swim leg in close proximity to one another, leading to packs of cyclists. Given that drafting is allowed, it's safer to have athletes trained for close pack riding. In longer distance races, Due to the duration and potential differences in swim times, athletes tend to spread out more. A longer draft zone helps minimize clusters of athletes, reducing the risk of accidents. Number three is emphasis on individual performance. In longer, non-drafting races, the emphasis is on individual endurance and pacing. A longer draft zone ensures that athletes rely on their own cycling abilities rather than the benefits from reduced air resistance behind another cyclist. Number four is equipment differences. The type of equipment used in draft legal versus non-drafting races can vary. Draft legal races often use standard road bikes, while non-drafting races feature time trial or triathlon-specific bikes designed for solo effort and aerodynamics. Time trial bikes can be harder to handle in tight packs compared to road bikes. Number five is race distance. The energy savings from drafting becomes more pronounced over longer distances, by establishing a longer draft zone in endurance events, organizers can ensure the race remains a test of individual ability over the extended distance. In summary, the draft zone's length in various triathlon distances reflects the specific nature, strategy, and safety considerations of each race type. All right, now let's talk about a couple of running rules. Why are headphones not allowed in triathlon? Headphones or any other electronic listening device are prohibited in triathlon for several reasons. Number one is safety. The most significant reason is definitely safety. Triathletes need to be aware of their surroundings at all times. During the bike and run portions, it's crucial for athletes to hear any verbal warnings or instructions from race officials, other competitors, or vehicles, especially when approaching from behind or at intersections. Number two is communication. Officials, volunteers, or other racers might need to communicate vital information rapidly. Headphones can prevent an athlete from hearing these instructions, which could pertain to changes in the race course, hazardous conditions, or other urgent matters. Number three is fairness. 
Using headphones might provide an athlete with a potential advantage. Music or coaching instructions could give a motivational boost or offer pacing guidance. To ensure a level playing field, it's best to restrict their use. Number four is encouraging sportsmanship. Triathlon is a communal event, and interactions between athletes are an integral part of the experience. Wearing headphones can create a barrier to this interaction and might be viewed as unsportsmanlike by some. Number five is technical difficulties. Relying on electronic devices can also present problems if there's a malfunction. If an athlete is depending on instructions or pacing from a device and it fails, it can disrupt their race strategy. And number six is environmental awareness. It's crucial to hear what's happening around you, whether it's the approach of other athletes, instructions from safety personnel, or warnings about changing conditions. Violations of the headphone rule in races can lead to penalties ranging from time penalties to disqualification. All right, next is why can't an athlete crawl during the running portion of a triathlon? In most triathlon rules, athletes must maintain a forward progress during the run without crawling. Here's why. Number one is safety concerns. First and foremost, if an athlete is resorting to crawling, it's an alarming indication of extreme physical distress. It could be a sign of severe dehydration, heat exhaustion, energy depletion, or other serious conditions. Allowing or encouraging an athlete to continue in such a state poses significant health risks. Number two is integrity of the sport. Triathlon is a test of endurance and skill across three disciplines, swimming, cycling, and running. Each segment has its challenges, and athletes train to meet these specific demands. Allowing crawling could diminish the essence and challenge of the running segment. Number three is fair play. If crawling were allowed, it could complicate race officiating. Determining what constitutes forward progress when an athlete is not on their feet can be ambiguous and could lead to inconsistencies in officiating. Number four is athlete dignity. From an organizational and spectator viewpoint, seeing athletes crawling might not portray the sport in the best light. While triathlons are inherently challenging, the goal is to have athletes trained and prepared to finish the race upright, highlighting their strength, resilience, and preparation. And number five is course logistics and flow. Athletes crawling could obstruct the path for other competitors, leading to potential collisions or forcing other runners to divert from their intended path. It's essential to understand that the safety and well-being of athletes are of the utmost importance in any sporting event. If a competitor is reduced to a crawl, it's a significant indication that they need medical attention, rest, and hydration rather than continuing in that state. Now let's wrap up with a few general triathlon rules. Why do some triathlon races have time cutoffs but others do not? Time cutoffs are used in many triathlon races for a variety of reasons. However, the presence or absence of cutoffs can depend on the nature of the race, its size, location, and organizing body. Here's why some triathlons have a time cutoff while others may not. Reasons for a time cutoff. Number one is safety. One of the primary reasons for implementing time cutoffs is to ensure the safety of participants. As races progress and fatigue sets in, the risk of injuries or medical issues can increase, especially for those on the course for extended periods. Number two is logistical constraints. Closing roads or securing permits for the race often come with time limitations. Once these permits expire, it might not be safe or legal to keep parts of the course open, especially in urban areas. Number three is resource management. Support staff, volunteers, medical personnel, and law enforcement are often present throughout races. Prolonged races mean extended hours for these individuals, which can be impractical or costly. 
Number four is fairness to all participants. Cutoffs ensure that all participants meet a basic standard of fitness and preparation. This helps keep the event competitive and ensures a smoother race experience for everyone. And number five is the event schedule. Some race venues host multiple events or waves in a single day. Time cutoffs ensure that the earlier races don't overlap or interfere with subsequent events. Now, here are some reasons why there may not be strict cutoffs. Number one is a smaller scale. Smaller local races might not have the same logistical challenges as larger ones. They might not need to close roads or might have fewer participants, making it easier to accommodate longer race times. Number two is venue specifics. Races held in areas without major traffic or without the need for extensive permits might not require strict cutoffs. Number three is race philosophy. Some races emphasize inclusivity and participation over competition. The goal might be to encourage participation and completion regardless of the time taken. And number four is different distances. Shorter races like sprints might not have the same need for cutoffs as longer distances like Ironman races. The risk and logistical challenges increase with race distance. In any case, it's crucial for participants to review the rules and guidelines for each specific race they enter. Understanding time cutoffs and other regulations can help athletes prepare adequately and set realistic goals for their race day performance. Okay, why can't an athlete receive outside assistance during a triathlon? The prohibition of outside assistance in triathlons and many other endurance races is rooted in principles of fairness, self-sufficiency, and safety. Here's a deeper look into why outside assistance is typically not allowed. Number one is fairness. Allowing outside assistance could provide certain athletes with an advantage, undermining the principles of an equal playing field. If some competitors have access to more or better resources during a race, it could unfairly tilt the balance in their favor. Number two is self-sufficiency. Triathlon is as much a test of an athlete's preparation, resilience, and problem-solving skills as it is of their physical capabilities. Managing nutrition, handling equipment malfunctions, and strategizing are all integral parts of a race. Receiving outside assistance could diminish this aspect of the challenge. Number three is safety and order. Allowing unscheduled or uncontrolled outside assistance can create logistical and safety issues. It could lead to overcrowded race courses, interfere with other athletes, or even pose dangers if, for example, supporters were to enter the race course at unauthorized points. Number four is the integrity of the race. The spirit of triathlon involves completing the race based on one's own abilities, preparation, and determination. External assistance could compromise the integrity of this achievement. Number five is race strategy and decision-making. Making on-the-fly decisions, such as how to address a flat tire or when to adjust pace, is a part of the race challenge. Outside coaching or assistance during the race could influence these decisions, again affecting the principle of the individual achievement. Number six is consistency across events. By standardizing rules across events, athletes can expect a consistent set of regulations, whether they're participating in a local race or a world championship. This consistency is essential for those who compete in various events throughout the year. And number seven is potential for unfair advantage through technology. With advances in technology, outside assistance isn't just limited to physical help. Real-time data relayed to athletes like pacing strategies based on competitors' positions or live physiological data can provide significant advantages. Prohibiting outside assistance helps in ensuring such technological advances don't impact the race outcome. 
Exceptions can be made in certain scenarios, like when assistance is provided by official race personnel or at designated aid stations. However, these exceptions are controlled and standardized to ensure fairness. And the last question is, why can't a non-competitor cross the finish line with a triathlete? In many triathlons, race organizers and governing bodies have rules that prevent non-competitors, such as family members, friends, or coaches, from crossing the finish line with a competing athlete. Here are the reasons for this restriction. Number one is safety. The finish line area can be congested with exhausted athletes completing their race. Introducing additional people into this mix can increase the risk of collisions, tripping, or other safety concerns. Number two is fair play. Having non-competitors accompany athletes might give an unfair advantage as they could provide encouragement, pacing, or even physical support. Number three is race integrity. Crossing the finish line is the culmination of an athlete's effort, determination, and training. Allowing non-competitors to join in this moment can dilute the individual accomplishment and challenge that the sport represents. Number four is accurate timing. The finish line typically has timing mats and equipment to record each athlete's finish time accurately. Additional people crossing the line can create complications or errors in this timing process. Number five is photography and media coverage. Many races have official photographers and media personnel capturing the moment athletes cross the finish line. Non-competitors can obstruct these shots, depriving athletes of memorable finish line photos and potentially complicating media coverage. Number six is emotional consideration. While the intention is often heartfelt, as loved ones want to share the joy of accomplishment, it's also essential to recognize that not every athlete might have someone to run in with. To ensure that no athlete feels left out or experiences any added emotional distress, it's sometimes easier to have a blanket rule applying to everyone. Number seven is race logistics and flow. Organizers aim to keep the finish area flowing smoothly. Non-competitors can obstruct this flow, causing backups and congestion in the finish chute, especially in larger events. And number eight, potential for rule infractions. Introducing external individuals into the race environment, even at the finish line, opens up the potential for unintended rule infractions or interference. It's worth noting that while many events have these restrictions in place, there are also many races, especially in community or charity level events, where such moments are cherished and allowances are made. It's always essential for athletes and their supporters to be aware of the specific rules and regulations for each event in which they participate. All right, my friend, thank you for tuning into today's episode. We've tackled some intriguing questions, delved into some insightful answers, and hopefully shed light on topics that matter to you. Your curiosity is what drives this show, and I truly appreciate the engagement from athletes and listeners alike. If your question didn't get answered, don't be disheartened. Send it to me at officialtriathletepodcast at gmail.com, and I'll do my best to address it in a future episode. Remember, every question is a journey to knowledge, and together, we're on a remarkable expedition. Until next time, keep asking, keep exploring, and always stay curious. Talk to you later. Bye. That's all for now. Thanks for tuning in. I want to get to know you, so head over to trynursecoaching.com and sign up for a free 30-minute goal-setting session. Love the show? I'd be forever grateful if you left a review and shared the podcast with your friends. And remember, do things that are hard. 